Well, good morning, everyone. And it's great to be with you this morning and to share with you in this service. And as together we come to look at God's Word, let us take a moment and let us pray. Father, as we come with your Word open before us, we ask that you will take away every distraction from us. That you will give us your message and your teaching so that we will be equipped and ready for everything that is ahead of us. Lord, take us and make us your own. Make us what you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Christoph has already said this morning, I'm sure as you started looking at the story of David last week, it was and is a familiar story to you. Even more so this week, David and Goliath, one of the stories that we will remember from Sunday school days, uh, from holiday Bible clubs, and from children's meetings. This week in my home congregation, we have been looking as one of our stories at Holiday Bible Club, David and Goliath. And as I was asking questions to the children, knowing that this sermon was coming up, it came home to me again how familiar this story is. But don't let its familiarity block its message to us. We're going to take time this morning to look at that portion that was read so that we can understand the background of the story that leads to the defeat of Goliath. Even this morning on the radio, if you happen to be listening, I think it was the 9 o'clock news on Radio Ulster, to be honest, it could have been the 3 o'clock news because the end of town that I am living in was disturbed this morning at 3 o'clock with chants going around the street. I think some thought the bonfires were being lit last night and unfortunately at 3 o'clock they were still running around. But even this morning it got mentioned that in the National Annual Biblical Literacy Test or the survey that they do, asking about David and Goliath, one of the respondents when asked, well, can you tell me about David and Goliath? I don't know if it was an older person or a younger person, turned around and said, yes, that's the name of a ship, isn't it? We think it's so familiar, but yet to quite a few in our society today, it is still a story that isn't known. We know that it has been known. Even Mark Twain mentions it in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I don't know if you were ever a fan of the television programs or reading the book, but Tom Sawyer, in an underhand way, manages to get a Bible at Sunday school. And it just happens to be the day that the local judge is presented in the congregation. And, of course, the superintendent of the Sunday school is proud to display that one of their very own has been able to collect enough tokens to get this Bible and when challenged about how much he knew of Scripture, Tom was asked, well, can you tell us the name of the first two disciples? Tom looked at his shoes and waited. And he was pressed for the answer, and he very quickly blurted out David and Goliath as two of the first disciples. I don't think that's what the superintendent was hoping for. Why do I tell you these things? Because we can get lost in the true meaning of stories when they become too familiar to us. The passage that we start in 1 Samuel 17 comes after the account of David being brought into the service of Saul as a musician. Saul has been troubled by a spirit from God, 
And every time this spirit would come upon him and he was greatly troubled, David would play music on the harp and relief would come to Saul. But 1 Samuel 17 moves from Saul's court and to the battlefield. The scene shifts to the valley of Elah where the Philistines have gathered their forces for the war. They encamp at Sukkah in Judah and the army of Saul in the valley. Don't think that this is the first time we meet the Philistines or that they have been in the background in this story. They have always been there. They first come in chapter 4 whenever they come to fight Israel at Aphek. On this occasion, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and consequently Eli himself, are killed. Israel is defeated and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. And the continued Philistine threat was a key in the motivation that people had of requesting a king. And God said of Saul, he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. Well, where they're at, this is a decisive battle. You cannot get away from the significance of where this is. This wasn't just another little throw one stone here and another stone there and let's see who wins. This was the key point in the battle against the Philistines. This piece of land was the natural entry point from the territory of the Philistines to come in to the Solite kingdom. And if the Israelites had lost this battle, well, they would be playing on the back foot to the Philistines as far as the Philistines wanted to take them. This was a battle that Saul needed to win. And of course, the Philistines, who are renowned throughout history, has been at that time one of the greatest military machines, organized and well-equipped. Knowing that this was a decisive battle, they bring their greatest weapon with them, Goliath, the giant that we know of from our Bible story days. This imposing figure of this Philistine, as the text starts to call him, comes out onto the hilltop each day and challenges the army of Israel. He was certainly someone that you would notice. This year, Union College went for its annual meal out to Stormont Parliament buildings, and we were taken on a tour of the chambers and the Great Hall. And you may recognize that whenever you see television photographs going through the main hall, the statue of Sir James Craig, Northern Ireland's first prime minister at the top of the first staircase. And it's a bronze statue, and we remarked how tall it was. And our guide told us, well, it's actually true to life. That was his real height. He was a man who stood over six foot and six inches tall. We were told that whenever he went around Stormont, whether it was within the estate or within the assembly building or the parliament building as it was then, he would be noticed. Even more so as he had his top hat on for the fashion of the day. He was a figure, a character that you would have known, not just politically, but in his physical presence. And so it was with Goliath. He stood at nine feet, nine inches, or three meters tall. I wouldn't like to bump into him on a dark night in a dark alley, possibly on the 11th of July at three o'clock in the morning in South Belfast. You couldn't have missed him or ignored him. Here he was in front of you. You could not get past this giant that was Goliath. Add to his imposing height, his imposing voice, the booming voice that would come across the valley to these people. 
Not a bit of wonder they were so frightened by him as he boomed across with his height. And then, of course, to his stature, add what he had on him. He had impressive armor and weaponry. And being such a tall man, he would have had the equivalent in size of his weaponry. He had a bronze helmet, bronze chainmail, bronze graves encasing his lower legs, and a bronze javelin on his back. His spear was in his hand, and he had someone to carry his shield for him. And this wasn't just one of these wee puny small shields. This would have covered him from his chin right down to his feet so that someone could go out. He was completely covered except for his face. And so he comes out, and he stands, carrying 64 kilograms of armor. And there he is on top of the other hilltop. The Israelites, knowing this is decisive, knowing that they must win this for the sake of their own nation and for the sake of their God. Of course, weighing 64 kilograms of armor on you, you wouldn't be the quickest on the battlefield. And so many of the commentators who write on this point this out that don't think Goliath came running out as a Hercules ready for battle. No, he probably cumbersome waddled out But even more so as you saw this figure looming towards you, the fear was in these people. So he comes. He comes with his challenge to the army of Israel. And it is a tactical challenge and common of what would happen in the Eastern world. Someone would fight on behalf of their army and whoever was the winner, well, they got the other army to submit and they would eventually be their people. So Goliath would represent the Philistine army and whoever would come forward from Saul's army would represent them and whoever won the defeated army and subsequently the nation would submit to the winning side. So as Goliath made this challenge, you can make sure in your mind that he did not think he was going to be the one who was defeated. And why not? He stood there with confidence. He was a trained military machine from his youth. There was no way he was going to be defeated. So he stood with confidence. But of course, this was a notion that was known on the other side of the battlefield. It was known that he was a military man from his youth. It was known that no one could defeat him. And so the fear grew in the army of Israel. We will learn in verse 16 that this challenge went on for over a month, 40 days. Goliath would come out. He would issue it twice daily. Think about it. How comfortable were the Philistines? Each day, sauntering out, giving the challenge, coming back in, going back out. And this would continue. And they would see the army of Israel each day. And they would see them and know their fear. Don't underestimate the plight of the Israelites. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn. Forty days of hearing this challenge proves this. These were a people who did not have hope. They had no idea of how they were going to defeat this giant, this champion from Gath. Well, only after this background is given so that we can understand the need of the people of Israel, the face changes in the story, and it moves from Goliath and the army of Israel, and it moves to David. So out of Jesse's eight sons, three of them are in the army. 
you have his three eldest on the battlefield, leaving the other five at home. And we are told that David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. In chapter 16, we already know that David was already in Saul's court as an arm bearer and as a musician. But being the youngest in Jesse's family, it was probably that he was too young to be on the battlefield as well. So with Saul away from the royal court, David had the freedom to move back and forward to help with the work at home and tend the sheep. Well, he's there. He's doing what he does. And he is called by his father, Jesse, to, who is eager to know the welfare of his sons, to go to the battle lines. News of Goliath's challenge mustn't have reached the countryside at this point, so no one knows what is going on, and Jesse is eager to know. So he packs up simple fare and dispatches David to the front lines. It is simple fare. It's a menial, trivial task. Loaded up, the roasted grain was the favorite food of simple people, and bread was common. Add to this the cheese that was brought to the commanders of the unit, This was common. This was what people did to support the army, to support the commanders of the units. So David, not knowing what was ahead, thinking that the battle was in full rage, heads off, unaware that as each day passes, the army of Israel is being tormented by their enemies. And not just their enemies, but one in particular who verbally comes at them and challenges them to stand up to him. David arrives at camp. I don't know if you can imagine the picture. He is eager. He's probably keen to see some action going on of some people falling and getting up again and others staying down, hopefully on the other side. But he arrives at camp. And what a letdown. Nothing's happening. In fact, as he arrives, both sides are starting to come out. There's no sign of bloodshed. There's good numbers in the people And they're just lining up, facing off the enemy. So he deposits the foodstuffs with the keeper of supplies and David rushes to go and meet his brothers to see how they're doing and to have a conversation with them. And as he is talking with them, Goliath comes forward and he issues his usual challenge. But this time we learn something different. This time as Goliath challenges them to come forward and defeat him, they run And they run in fear. Yes, we know that previously in the chapter they they think it's terrible and they are in great dismay. But now when they see him and they hear him, they run in fear. They are beaten down. They are a beaten people. Forty days of this, they do not have the strength to face him. Well, whatever you think of David's attitude in the next verses, David, the young upstart from the backwater town, puts his mouth in action, and he says, how dare this Philistine defy the army of the living God? Who's going to stand against him? And he asks the question of the men around him, well, what's going to happen to the man who defeats this giant? What will be done for the man who defeats this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. And as he is asking this question, the answer comes back that they will receive great wealth from the king. They will receive the king's daughter in marriage 
and his father's family will be exempt from taxes. But then, in David's little idea that everything is going well, who comes in? Only big brother Eliab. Now, I am one of two in my family, and I have an older sister by three years. I can sympathize with David at this point. Because Eliab comes in and he says, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Eliab, the passage tells us, burned with anger. He burned with anger. Even if we knew nothing of David's relationship with his family before this, these few verses tell us everything that we need to know about this relationship. Because as we read of David going and having a conversation with his brothers, we get the idea that they've matured, they begin to appreciate each other, but no, Eliab still has some issue with this youngest brother. But why is Eliab like this? Why is he so burned with anger? You see, Eliab had witnessed the anointing of David. He had been there when Samuel had come and all the brothers had passed by and asked, well, is there any more? And David comes. David, the shepherd. David, the one who was dispatched to the fields because he was irrelevant, unimportant, brought back in to be anointed as the future king of Israel. And there's an irony here because Eliab says, look, I know your heart. I know you're only here to see the battle. I know you're only here just to, to see it all. But the irony is that Eliab was there when David was anointed because of God's choosing according to God's heart. Eliab could be raising issue with David as sibling rivalry, or it could be that he was annoyed with David's conduct. We just don't know. But whatever the reason, you can picture David as the younger brother turning round in a whining voice saying, now what have I done? Can I not do anything right? What have I done now to annoy you? You're the big boy. You're in the army. Just go and polish your sword. Let me talk to these men. Can't I even speak? David, the upstart from the backwater town of Bethlehem, is in the thick of it. And as God's anointed person is in the right place at the perfect time to be used by God. And of course, David, whether he was arrogant or not, just turns around and continues his conversation and lets Eliab fume in whatever way he does. And he asks the same question. What will happen to the man who defeats this enemy of Israel? Well, whatever David has said or has asked, word gets to Saul. Saul, whether he was able to rally the troops or not, is open for debate. But he hears and he calls David... And David is now in the presence of the king. And he is full of confidence. Full of confidence so much so that this young lad offers to fight this nine-foot giant. His credentials are clear. For years he has protected his father's sheep against the attacks, the attacks from lions and bears. And even when the situations got life-threatening to him, he was able to get free and still be the victor over these lethal animals. David accounts all this to God, that it was by the power of God who delivered him from the wild animals and who will deliver him from the hands of this Philistine. 
Uh, we all portray Saul to be the villain in all of the story of David. But can you see him sitting back? Can you see a, a wry smirk coming on his face thinking, who does this guy think he is? A lion and a bear? Well, it's believable. But come on, to get out of their claws and defeat them? Whatever Saul is thinking, whatever motivates Saul, he says, go and the Lord be with you. Does he see a sparkle of confidence in David's eye that he once had? Does he feel threatened and wants to get rid of this young upstart out of his way? Or does he catch a vision, David's vision of how great God is? Whatever compels Saul to agree, he sends David out. But he gets him prepared first. And this is where we get the picture of the four-year-old going into a parent's bedroom, opening up the wardrobe or a fancy dress box at home, putting on this sun hat that slips down over their head and right over their eyes and over their nose, the high-heeled shoes or boots that come up practically the whole way up their legs, and a coat that would look fine on anyone else but looks more like a cloak on this child. Well, there's the armor on David. It is too heavy. It doesn't fit. He is not used to it. And so he says, Saul, keep, keep it. Keep your armor. I don't want it. What does he do? He walks out with his staff in his hand, his sling, and he chooses five smooth stones from the nearby stream. He is going to meet the greatest weapon the Philistine army has with a staff, a sling, and five smooth stones. Let that sink in for a minute and see how futile it looks. Everything, even right up to this point, is against the army of Israel. And now this young lad is going out with nothing more than a stone and a slingshot. But David goes, and the greatest battle scene we will ever know is set. David approaches Goliath, and Goliath has to move closer because he can't exactly see what's going on because David is so small. And so he cumbersomely moves closer and closer to see that this is just a young lad. This is just a young boy who is coming towards him. And what about Goliath? Well, Goliath's a little bit miffed. Goliath is offended. What, you're sending me this boy to fight me? You come and treat me like a dog with sticks? This champion of champions is offended by the challenger that he has been requesting for 40 days. And what does he do? He curses. He curses in the name of his gods against David. And now we see the true dimensions of this battle. It is a Philistine with his gods coming against this boy whose God is the Almighty Lord. These are the dimensions that this battle is fought on. It is God's anointed fighting on behalf of the living God with his strength. And we have the tit-for-tat verbal exchange with Goliath promising to feed David's flesh to the birds of the air and David retorting back, well, I'm going to do the same, but I'm going to do it better because God is on my side. I am doing it in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. 
David goes in the strength and the confidence of God. He is not going for his own personal gain, but he's going that all may see that the victory is the Lord's. Proverbs 3 verses 5 and 6 remind us that we are to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. David didn't rely on the armor of Saul, nor did he rely on the strength and support of the army of Israel, but his reliance was in God. This young boy went to fight this enemy understanding who God was. We know the ending. We sing about it in many children's courses. As Goliath quite cumbersomely comes before David, David moves quickly towards him, puts his hand in the bag, takes out the stone, starts waving the sling around his head, and the stone goes and hits Goliath in the only place possible where Goliath is not protected, on the forehead and it sinks in and Goliath falls to the ground and verse 50 in this passage announces the victory so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone without a sword in his hand he struck down the Philistine and killed him who would have thought well of course we knew the outcome of the story because we know it but if we were reading this for the first time who would have thought A sling and a stone would have killed this giant. David, the young boy from a simple family from a backwater town, saves a nation. Not because of his military genius, but because he trusted in the Lord God Almighty. David faced the giant Goliath and was not put off while the rest were. David was not afraid of his height or the sound of this giant. He was not intimidated by the armor or the weaponry. He didn't let the fear of the army of Israel get to him in facing the foe. David knew his God. He knew the strength of God, and David bore testimony to the might of God. And we know that by the account that he gives to Saul. But as we think of what this means for us today, as we think about how we take this great little Bible story that is so rich in truth and how we make it real and apply to us today. We know in this life we face insurmountable challenges. We know that we face difficulties of financial and social security. We face pressures of supporting our family and raising them. We face the unknown future of a volatile, ever-changing and uncertain world. We cannot guarantee anything But we also face spiritual difficulties and battles in the depths of our hearts and in the public realms of our homes, our workplaces, and our community of worship. So how do we face them? How do we face our giants? Those things that are standing on the other hilltop, as we stand across from it, we look it square in the eye and we don't know what to do. Because the key point of the army of Israel, why it takes 37 verses to understand, is that they are day by day being degraded and put down, and so they are losing all hope, all hope in themselves and all hope in God. 
And as we face our giants, the things that are out to get us in the physical world and in the spiritual realms, how do we face what is in front of us? How do we stand and look at straight ahead? With what confidence can we do it? We cannot ignore the truth that it was in the strength of the Lord that David defeated Goliath. We can't deny that at all. He was God's chosen and anointed one. But can I remind you from last week what we learned? That we learned we are all chosen. The children of God are chosen people. And God can and will do great things in us and through us. In Hebrews 13 verse 5 we're reminded that God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. This is a promise from Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 6. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It is a promise. It's not a human promise. It's not the things that we so flippantly agree with each other and then break whenever it suits us. But this is a promise from God. For when he says that he will never leave us or forsake us, he stays true to his word. God will give us the strength needed to face the giants that we, fa- that we will have in our lives. And Christ died so that we would know the fulfillment of that promise. That the relationship with God would be established one time for all. That there was a way back for us to him. And through the strength of our salvation in Christ, knowing the sovereignty of God, we can stand and face whatever comes our way. Now you can be sitting there and thinking, yes, that's all well and good. Those words are great. But my life is a lot different than the words you're saying. My life is not your life. And it's not the life of the person beside me because each of our home circumstances and our situations in this world are different But let me encourage you with 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 that reminds us that God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. We stand up to our giants in a spirit of power that is given from God, not a spirit of fear. And it's a real spirit. It's not another Bible story where we learn of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Pentecost wasn't just another thing that happened. The Spirit came so that we would be strong, equipped, and able to stand and face the giants that we have. Which do you allow to rule? Which in our lives do we say, I'm actually going to run in fear or I'm going to stand up and face whatever it is head on in the strength of the Lord. In the week ahead, and I'm not just restricting it to the week ahead, but let's face it, most of us can only look a week ahead. In the week that is coming, with the issues both physical and spiritual that we will have to face, will you face it with fear or will you take hope and encouragement from this story of David this true story of David and the other supporting passages and verses that we've looked at to say that I will take my stand and I will face it in the strength of the Lord. For it is he who has given me a spirit of power and has promised that he will never leave nor forsake. The story of David is familiar. It is so familiar and well known. 
Don't let its familiarity dim your understanding of the true message that it contains. The victory is the Lord's. It has to be and it will be. And he will see us through whatever we face. And it will be for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the timely reminders that you give us from your word. Lord, you know each of us. You know each of our hearts. And you know each of our circumstances. So we pray that you will speak to us. And you will encourage us and challenge us with your words. So that we will be able to stand. That we will have the confidence to stand and trust in you. Knowing that you are the victor. And knowing that it is for your glory. Impart these words to us. Make them real. And give us the avenues in which we may apply them. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.